Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. The things that we, that our kids do, the accomplishments our kids have, we don't get to co-opt those as evidence of our good parenting. Just like we don't get to blame ourselves, we shouldn't have to blame ourselves if things go wrong with our children. It's not our fault if our kids end up addicted to drugs and alcohol. It's not our fault if our kid has a learning disorder. It is just if we're, if we can't, you know, take credit for those failings, we also really can't take credit for all of their successes. And that's so unfair to them to take credit for those things because those are their accomplishments, not ours. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 163. Today, we're talking about the gift of failure with Jessica Leahy. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clarkfield's Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans. Welcome back, dear listener, and welcome if you're brand new to the Mindful Mama podcast. Oh my gosh, so nice to have you here. It's great. Great to be in your ears, and I appreciate it. 
In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Jessica Leahy, and she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And she teaches high school English and writing in drug rehab for adolescents. She's so incredibly smart, and she has so much to offer. I'm so excited for you to talk to her because, I mean, if you're like me, you can feel it's kind of like in the zeitgeist, right? Like it feels like we're under pressure from the world to have everything go as well as possible for our kids, right? We want them to succeed. So we start to like direct them on what to do and how to do everything, right? And we may say to ourselves, like, what's the problem in this? But Jessica teaches us, talks to us, we'll talk to you and you'll hear about how this parenting style can actually undermine kids' success and autonomy. So it actually can kind of do the opposite of what we are intending, right? So this is really an episode chock full of tips on how to communicate with our kids and actually with their teachers. So this is such an important episode, whether your kids are school age or not, it's something to help us start to think about are we giving our kids some autonomy? Are we letting them fail at little things? Are we? Is it okay for them to fail? Is it okay for them to make mistakes? Is it okay for us? Is it okay for us to make mistakes, right? That can be a, a big hurdle to get over in ourselves, right? So I want you to listen for how, you know, these highly directive parenting styles can undermine kids' learning. Listen for how extrinsic motivators, Jessica talks about how 40 years of research show that extrinsic motivators you know, that which are reward and punishment are a disaster for kids learning. They don't work. It's crazy that we still use them. It drives me bananas, which you'll hear. (laughs) And that you're going to hear how kids should be owning their homework. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So before we dive into this really important and powerful conversation, I want to let you know that I will be opening up my group coaching program soon for enrollment. And I only have room. It's a it's a five-month program. It'll go from August through, let's see, the five months after that. And I'll be enrolling it soon. And I'm letting you know about it now because I only have room for 12 spots in this program. And I do close the doors after that. They're It's a small group program, so we get lots of personal one-on-one attention over time with a small sisterhood so that you get the accountability you need to make the changes you want. And we go over time because it took us time to get where we are and to make the changes we want. It takes some time after that. So this is not for everybody. It's only a small group. So if it's something that interests you, I'm just letting you know now so you might like to hop on the wait list and get some early information about it. And that you can learn more and hop on the wait list at mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching. And yeah, so, well, let's do it. Let's dive into this conversation. Join me at the table as I talk to Jessica Leahy. Jess Leahy, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. I'm so glad you could be here. And I really enjoyed reading your book. I love The Gift of Failure. I love your whole little section on like the parenting history, which I'd never seen in any kind of context before. So I'm definitely going to have to ask you about that. But I want to just like start us off by 
asking you about your, you've described it as a sense of discomfort that you had when your sons were kind of getting into their teen years that you were feeling like they were ill prepared and you were a seventh grade teacher at the time. Yeah. So I've been, I've actually been a teacher for 20 years and I've taught Mm -hmm. every grade from six to 12. I taught middle school for a long chunk of time in there. I currently teach high school But especially in middle school, which frankly, the heart of this book is middle school, mainly because my heart (laughs) lies in middle school. I just, I love them. I love teaching them. I love the developmental phases. And it's just, it's the coolest time. And it's really a fantastic time to be actively sort of pushing kids out on their own and and helping them learn to self-advocate and all that stuff. So just at the same time that I was teaching middle school, my older son was in middle school And, you know, I was really going through all of that from two sides with my teacher brain and with my parent brain. And my teacher brain was getting really angry at the parents of my students for, you know, all this overparenting and making these the kids helpless. And then I realized I was doing the very same thing to my own children. So I was in big trouble with myself. I had a bit of a reckoning. It was a little bit humiliating for me. <laughs> what were, I'm curious in two, about two things, like what were some of the things I'm curious about, like what were your parents doing, the, the mm-hmm. parents of your students, what were they doing that were driving mm-hmm. you crazy? And then what were your sons not, what did that sort of sense of them being ill-prepared show mm-hmm. up as that you could identify? Well, the parent side, I mean, ask any educator, you know, that's been in the media the past couple of days, in particular, I've seen a couple of articles bouncing around on Twitter about, you know, teachers leaving the profession and why are they leaving the profession? And many of them are leaving the profession because they just don't feel supported, especially in the face of increasing acrimony. You know, there's this sort of weird thing that the chasm between parents and teachers has been opening up and it's become increasingly acrimonious, increasingly sort of adversarial, mainly because I think parents are under so much pressure to have their kids, to have everything go right for their kids so they can set them up for the best possible path. And, you know, teachers are trying really hard to make sure the kids are learning in the best possible way. And those two, some, those two things sometimes don't dovetail perfectly. And, you know, so that was happening. I was, you know, getting into scraps with, you know, the parents of my students a little bit, but also I was really concerned because I think that that focus on the grades and the points and the scores and the anxiety was really starting to undermine not only their interest in learning. Um, I had a student tell me that directly, that it was messing with her interest in learning, but it was also messing somehow with their ability to learn. And I wasn't really sure how that was happening. It was just a gut feeling. And so I got to spend a couple of years researching that, researching motivation, researching how we learn, researching how parenting styles affect learning. And there's a lot of really interesting data there. And all of that data pointed to a picture of you know, these parents who are directive that are telling their kids sort of, okay, first do this, then do this. No, 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 do it this way. No, no, okay, do it next, do this. That highly directive parenting style actually undermines learning. And so that was happening at school. And then at the very same time, I was looking at my children, realizing, you know, I had at that point, I think the nine and 14 and realizing 
not just the fact that, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff that I would have been freaked out if I'd let them do it. You know, I would, I was running around in the woods on a horse. My parents didn't know where I was all day long and, you know, getting on a train and going into Boston by myself and spending the day in Boston with friends. And I was trying to picture my own children doing that and realizing I couldn't even picture it. But I actually, very specifically, uh, my nine-year-old came to me one day, or we had a conversation one day, and it came to light that my nine-year-old was didn't know how to tie his own shoes. And Mm. that was absolutely, completely my fault. I had done that to him. And Mm. it was, like I said, there was a, a big moment of reckoning there where I had to say, oh my gosh, I have made my own children helpless. And so now it's like super important (laughs) that I go back and figure this out, not only for my own students, but for my own kids. So that's where the gift of failure was born, was in that process of learning how to do better for both. Mm, Wow. Wow. You know, my daughter is about to turn nine as we record this. And, and yeah, I could, I, I could relate to that feeling of, oh my goodness, that that sort of sinking feeling that you must have had when you when you found out about that. But there's so much in what you said that I want to point to. That so, because as I mentioned, like, you know, I teach a mindful parenting course. And in the course, we talk about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. We talk about how orders and like a lot too much direction, right? It really causes resentment and how it, it really undermines and you know sort of the that style of parenting that authoritarian style of parenting undermines kids intrinsic motivation to do the right thing and you're saying that the research shows that this highly directive parenting undermines their learning and that you're really talking about their intrinsic desire mm-hmm. to learn which is something i'm super passionate about as a someone who's been involved in getting charter montessori schools off the ground and who learned about you know learning where kids have more direction and no grades <laughs> yeah and how powerful that is to to kind of like not kill the spark for learning but right. so what tell me about the research that's talking about the parenting style how that undermines learning Well, first of all, I want to make sure that we're not confusing directive parenting or controlling parenting with authoritarian parenting style. There, Mm. there's, I don't want to go, we don't really Mm -hmm. have time to go into all the details, but essentially what I'm talking about with directive parenting Mm -hmm. is parents who tend to step in. The The research I point to mostly comes from Wendy Grolnick. Um, there, she has a couple of, if you go to jessicalahey.com, under mm-hmm. the speaking page, there's a big button that says download speaking bibliography. And all of these, the books I tend to refer to a lot are there and these will all be there. But Wendy Grolnick's books are there and, and she has some really fantastic research she's done on the difference between the children of directive parents, parents who sort of tell the kids what to do, you know, in a particular order, one, two, three, four, do it this way. Don't ask a lot of questions, just do it this way. Sometimes we'll take over for the kids versus what's called autonomy supportive parenting, which is Mm -hmm. supporting a child's ability to decide how they're going to do a task in what order they're going to do a task, when they're going to do a task. The two kids, a child of a directive parent, child of an autonomy supportive parent, there's a big difference in those kids when it comes to tackling tasks that are frustrating on their own when you remove the parent from the situation. 
the children of the directive parent are much less likely to be able to complete a task that is frustrating for them than the child of a kid who has given them the opportunity to get frustrated and sort of figure it out on their own or do what really great teachers do, which is not necessarily give them the answer, but help lead them in a direction that they can discover the answer for themselves. Mm. The big issue there is that if you think about it, when I do professional development for teachers, I I've go around, I visit schools and I get to do professional development. We talk about sort of, you know, learning in the brain stuff and what really works to encode good memory and that kind of stuff. And, and one of these tools that works really well is something called desirable difficulties, giving kids material in a way that makes them sort of have to parse it, makes them have to break it down on their own. It's a little bit beyond their ability level. It's a little bit difficult. The word desirable is there on purpose. It's not like, you know, you can't give a kindergarten or calculus and say, oh, go at it. You're going to figure it out and you'll know it so well. But if you think about the kids who can benefit from desirable difficulties are kids who can be frustrated. And if the kids of directive parents can't be frustrated, can't handle that frustration, can't push through and finish a task when faced with frustration, they are going to be less likely to be able to benefit from some of the most effective teaching tools we have. That's what concerns me when it comes to education. Yes, it concerns me that kids are seeing learning is beside the point and their anxiety levels are incredibly high and rising and their perfectionism is at such a point that they're afraid to make mistakes and they're developing what Carol Dweck calls a fixed mindset. Happy to go into that if you want. But mm-hmm. all of those things are contributing to a situation where kids are afraid to look dumb, afraid to not look to look anything other than perfect, afraid to raise their hands, afraid to ask for help, afraid to take challenge problems because they don't want to make any mistakes at all. And learning has sort of gone out the window is sort of beside the point. And P.S., these kids of directive parents are having less success when it comes to techniques like desirable difficulties. So it really sets teachers up. You know, I'd always rather have a kid in my class that can be frustrated, that's of average intelligence, than, you know, a super talented genius kid who falls apart at the first sign of frustration. I'll always take that average kid who can be frustrated every time. Mm, Wow. There's so much there. You know, you bring me, like the other night, I try to raise pretty independent kids and Leah, my daughter just turned 12. And the other night, they, she's been doing her laundry for ages, but I just basically taught her to put everything in on cold and just not, don't worry about separating colors. <laughs> so that's <laughs> like my lazy, lazy way of doing it. Right. Anyway, that's been working fine for many years. And then the other, the other night I was said, I'm putting in a light wash. And mm-hmm. she was like, what? I'm not good at this <laughs> and I can't. And it's like, well, this isn't rocket science. I think we can figure it out. So we sat down, she pulled her things out. Okay. And she was feeling kind of uppity about it. And she was like, holding up in like a burnt orange shirt. Is this light? I was like, well, what do you think? Is that more white or does that have some colors? In it? You know, I wasn't going to just answer the questions, but I felt like, oh, this is this kind of wake up moment. I'm like, oh, you know, this yeah. is something she has to learn. But so in moments like, so these are like everyday moments like this, everyday parenting interactions and moments like this are where kids are either learning to be, as parents, we can either be supporting their autonomy or we can be kind of overly directing and controlling them, which, so the, the overly directing and controlling leads to kids who are afraid to fail and aren't doing well. And they're too, they're too, you know, can't even handle their frustration, which also then leads me to like, 
that being able to handle our frustration, like as adults, we were so we are so quick to like just distract ourselves with our phones from any uncomfortable (laughs) feelings. So I'm sure our kids are learning that. So there's so many directions here for the parent who's listening and is saying, oh my gosh, you know, I want to support my child's autonomy. Am I directing them too much? What do you say to that parent as far as like how to kind of discern whether they are doing that, you know, whether they are too controlling or not? Do you put yourself last? Do you feel guilty for taking care of yourself or going to the gym or making time for meditation? It's time to let go of this harmful mommy martyr mindset. It's time to reclaim your time, your sanity, and the energy that you bring to the world and your family. I'm so excited to let you know that I'm offering a free live training called the Unmartyr Yourself Challenge. And over four days, you're gonna learn to make time for yourself, speak your truth skillfully, destroy mommy guilt, and improve your relationships and thrive without ever being selfish. So I hope you'll join us. It's at mindfulmamamentor.com slash unmartyr. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash unmartyr. U-N-M-A-R-T-Y-R. As soon as you sign up, you'll get instant access to the Unmartyr Yourself self-care assessment. It's a powerful, eye-opening exercise where you'll assess your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and relationship needs. Join the Unmartyr Yourself Challenge now at mindfulmamamentor.com slash unmartyr. I can't wait to see you there. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. We are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It is really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's a sword fight. 
And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs. And it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. Well, there are two really sort of simple pieces of information. Um, There's a mindset that I try to keep in my head all the time, and and this saves me over and over and over again when I'm just frustrated and want to step in and do for my kid. And that's every single time my kid is faced with something, I try to think about the fact that, number one, parenting is a long haul job. It is not something that is determined by sort of these everyday moments when there's an emergency. And it would be so much easier if I, you know, drove this homework assignment in that my kid left sitting on the table at home. I try really hard to think about the possibility for learning that could happen in that moment, all the opportunities for learning. And then I, but what I really focus on is, okay, my kid screwed up today but where do I want them to be in six months, in a year, in five years? Do I want to still be taking the homework assignment because they haven't come up with a strategy for doing it themselves or figuring out a way to remember it themselves? Or do I leave it at home today and sort of press the issue by letting some consequences fall into place? And that example is actually in the book. And, you know, when that happened with my kid, I think he was about nine at the time. And when he did leave his homework at home and I didn't take it to him at school, even though I was, there were all kinds of very specific reasons I was dying to do it. I really felt like I was doing the wrong thing by not doing it. It, that day he had to have a discussion with his teacher about his teacher had just had it. And he's like, look, this has been going on for too long and it's time for you to come up with some strategies so that you won't do this next time. And that, that strategy my kid came up with on that day is the strategy he uses to this day. He's 15 now to manage his stuff. And, you know, what's so interesting is, you know, instead of being the kind of parent that is directive or controlling, be the kind of parent that is supportive of your kid figuring out their own strategies. So think long-term, think about whether or not the situation right in front of you is an opportunity to learn something. And I actually have gotten to the point where I've started kind of engineering some of those situations. Mm. So if like, for example, if I'm traveling somewhere, I brought this up in an interview just the other day, I travel a lot for work because I speak at schools a lot and I try to take my younger kid with me a lot. And so what I've started doing is showing up at the airport just, you know, 15 minutes early, Mm -hmm. earlier than I normally would. And then say, okay, go, what do we do first? Where do we go? What, nice. What, yeah. And you know, I'm there. I'm not 
I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm, I'm there. And of course, at first he's like, I have no idea. And you realize very quickly that our kids are not necessarily learning by watching us all day long. They go on autopilot a bit. You know how when you first started learning to drive and you realized you hadn't been paying attention to where the roads went the entire time you'd been a passenger in the car? Same thing. Mm-hmm. So actually my kid, despite having traveled a ton I had no idea what to do first and had no idea what the kiosk did or where you put the bags or how you get through security. He had no idea. So I could have just kept doing that for him until he was, I don't know, ready to take his first flight by himself. But then, then he's really in trouble. (laughs) So yeah, engineer some of those opportunities when everyone's calm and there's plenty of time and stuff like that. So think long-term rather than short-term. Think about the process more than the end product. You know, if your kid comes home with a really bad grade, start talking more about how they got that grade and what they're going to do next time and what are you going to learn from this and what are you going to leave behind rather than focusing on the end product. And, you know, start thinking in terms of yet. It's a really potent word. You know, when your kid freaks out and they're like, I can't do this. You say, well, of course you can't do it yet. You just, I just showed you for the first time how to do it. So long-term process yet. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this. Well, you know, it's interesting because we are doing a home exchange this summer for four weeks and we're going to France and we have a French family coming and living in our mm-hmm. home. And um, so we're all kind of on Duolingo learning some French. Right. Yeah. And so the, my youngest daughter is like, oh, I'm bad at this. I said, well, yeah. the, the way we get better at anything is time and practice. Yep. She's like, I've practiced so much. And I'm like, not really <laughs> for yeah. a language. No, yep. you're not good at it yet. But I love this idea of the airport. I'm like, I'm yeah. kind of thinking and then I'm thinking, well, if it's in another language, that might be too challenging. Yeah. No, no, actually, there's actually the funny thing about the language thing. So I have two kids who one of my kids was a little more willing to go out there and try the language thing. We actually, I live right um, right near the Canadian border in, in Vermont. So going to Montreal is something that is pretty easy for us to do. And my older son learned French in school. And so, and granted, Quebecois is so difficult. It's so different from French, France French. And but one of the things that you can do is when you're sitting there at the restaurant, just don't open your mouth so that your kid has to order their food by themselves. I mean, you know, there's an awkward silence, but it's an amazing opportunity for your kid to just have to figure it out. And and I have found anyway that like waiters and people who work in the airport, when you, when they see that you're trying to teach a kid how to do something, they are so kind. It has been a really cool experience in in encountering kindness in other people when they see that you're really trying to help your kid do for themselves. It's, it's been a really cool experience. But you have this incredible opportunity coming up <laughs> to teach all kinds of stuff. I know. I'm kind of excited. Now, yeah. that's, this, you, I've got like, like three great tips right there. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jeff. One thing you talked about, because you talk, mentioned your, your homework moment, with your son and letting him have that and, and how valuable that was in the long term. This is one of the things that comes up time and time again in the Mindful Parenting course where what I teach parents is to how to discern when it's your problem and when it's your child's problem, yeah. right? And to let children solve their own problems and maybe be a helper to kind of solve their own problems, but to not take on their problems as their own. And the homework, of course, comes up again and again right. and again. And you right. write, I was so excited. I started, I dog-eared the page. <laughs> <laughs> Decades of studies and hundreds of pages of scientific evidence point to one conclusion that sounds crazy, but it absolutely works. 
if parents back off the pressure and anxiety over grades and achievement and focus on the bigger picture, a love of learning and independent inquiry, grades will improve and test scores will go up. So, okay, so it's not a one thing. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. So some of that comes down to, you know, if anyone's ever watched Dan Pink's TED Talk or Red Drive and or the work that sort of came before that, which is Edward Deasy's Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation. You know, we have 40 years of really good research showing that extrinsic motivators for kids when it comes to things like schoolwork, learning, long-term processes like getting better at piano or whatever it is, learning a sport, uh, are a disaster. Long-term motivation, extrinsic motivators, motivators that come from outside of us, whether that's paying them for grades, whether that's the grades themselves, actually, which puts teachers in a really weird position, or punishing them based on their grades, withholding your love for in exchange for grades. I've written about that as well. All of those things are extrinsic motivators, and that will undermine their interest in learning. In the book, I say very plainly, if you would like your kids to not want to learn math, pay them for their math grades. It's really quite clear. So Jess, that's can, can I interrupt yeah. you? Because this yeah, of course. drives me crazy because I know about this research. I know yeah. about this research. And I see that it's all happening in so many classrooms I know. all I know. around the country. I had a client she told me how her daughter went to kindergarten and she was liking reading and doing all these things. And then she mm -hmm. had a thing where... Reading if, journals. Yeah, if you read yeah. X number of pages, yeah. you will get X. And her daughter would, would only read up to the right. number of pages and wouldn't read beyond it. Yeah. And then she was totally disappointed with the cheap plastic thing that she got at the end. So why are we still using this in the schools when all the... Well, what away from it, it drives me I know, I know. I know. Well, you know, if you read Drive, Dan Pink's talks about this all the time. We've known this for a long time. When I say there's 40 years of research, I don't just mean there's 40 years of research. I mean there's what's called metadata, studies of the studies showing the validity of the studies, saying, yes, this is really good research. It really is true. Now, there are some exceptions. If you want someone to do something that requires no planning, no long-term commitment, you know, like one quick task, if you want someone to do something that requires like a one-off boost to motivation, or, you know, you want them to get to their first soccer practice, or you want them to stay quiet for 20 minutes while you're on the phone, then it'll work. Um, sticker charts also total disaster for behavior. Um, think about what sticker charts teach children. Sticker charts teach children to do the right thing, to act the right way and be the right, you know, use the right behavior only when someone is watching. Mm -hmm. And so that's why as a rule, schools, uh, national schools of character don't use sticker charts, reading journals, reading logs, all of these things. There's some really great research. Um, that's why I'm a huge fan right now. I'm a huge fan of Twitter for education, mainly because, and this may be out of date now, but a bunch of, a couple of years ago, the word on the streets from Twitter actually was that as a profession, teachers are the largest users of Twitter. And there's some really amazing teachers out there that write endlessly about why we need to knock it off with the reading journals and sticker charts and reading logs. Um, they undermine kids' love and dedication to long-term, you know, sort of that interest long-term in reading, in learning math, whatever it is. Speaking of things that we know don't work, we got to stop timing kids when it comes to math facts. Ma timing kids 
with math facts, um, go to uh, ucubed.org. That's Joe Bowler. There's a book called Mathematical Mindsets. Talks about this. If you go to ucubed.org, there's very specifically on there the research on on, uh, timed math facts. If your child is being timed, on their math facts, you need to give the evidence to their teacher and say, please stop doing this. It increases math anxiety and mastery and speed are not the same thing. Mm. Mastery, in fact, for some children, even kids who have mastery, when you introduce timing to the math exercise, it makes it so that they're less likely to be able to perform. So, you know, there's all these things we do in education all the time that we know don't work, and yet we continue to do them. Um, just Why? because it's the way, because we've always done it that way. It's just we, think we don't trust it. It's like, no, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. A, look, there's all kinds of A through F grades. We know those are a really blunt measure. They're not necessarily good measures of learning. They're, we know that, and I wrote about that in a, a piece in the Atlantic called Why Letter Grades Deserve an F. We know for a fact that when we do that, teach, 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 then one big test, that that's a disaster for learning. What works really well is teach a little quiz a little, teach a little quiz a little. That's called formative assessment. That works really well for learning, but we don't tend to do that very often. So don't even get me started on all the things we do in (laughs) education that we're doing because we've always done it that way. Luckily, I'm optimistic. We're at an incredible time in education right now where we can, you know, look at fMRIs and we can see what's happening in the brain when people are learning and we know what really works from a a neurocognitive perspective. We can see what really works from a technique perspective, and we're getting better. We really are. Schools are moving away from A through F grading and towards standards-based grading. Schools are moving away from cumulative or summative assessments and using more formative assessments. It's getting better. We're getting there. And it's, you know, I think it's just going to take evidence, time, communication, better professional development. So, okay. Yeah. All right. You're I making you're making me a little hopeful. Sorry, it's oh, like a personal oh. like a frustration, and I don't. I'm, I I'm not in the education world, so I don't have as much information about that. But wow. Okay. Cool. So, so, so many things. So many things. <laughs> so, but we can learn from this as parents too. Yeah. Like this, this extrinsic motivators are a disaster. Like our kid, yes. you know that that extrinsic motivators don't work. And but but the they're tricky. Is, they're super uh, tricky. They seem like they work in the short term. They really do. And they do work in the short term, but they don't work over the long term. So they can, it can feel like they're working, but think about it this way. So when I was little, uh, Pizza Hut used to offer coupons for the number of books you read in the summer. Think about what's more valuable in that equation. What's more valuable if you're getting pizza coupons for pizza in exchange for reading, What's more valuable, the books, the reading, or the pizza? Well, clearly it's the pizza. Otherwise, we would give kids books for eating pizza, but we don't. And so when we, you know, when we pay kids for grades, we're like, oh, here's this super valuable thing. And yeah, 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 do that learning, whatever. But here's this super valuable thing I'm going to give you if you bring me the grades that I want. Um, We're teaching kids the learning isn't as important as the end result because that's what you'll get paid for. That's what you'll get pizza coupons for. And in the, in the process, they lose their interest in learning and that's a disaster. And that bums me out. You know, that's fascinating because my grandfather paid me for grades. He would give me a dollar for every A and Uh I was psyched about that in fourth grade, but like kind of like he still kind of would do that in high school. And I'd be like, I don't really care about a dollar. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's yeah, like not that exciting for me. Inflation like there's no inflation happens. happening. Yeah. <laughs> there's a great, there's a great discussion of that in Edward DC's why we do what we do. The science of self-motivation. There's a great, um, in Ron Lieber's the opposite of spoiled. There's a fantastic discussion of that. Uh, yeah. Inflation happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, this is so exciting. You're giving me so many avenues to, to pursue, but I, we did talk about, um, so, so, supporting i want to get back to supporting homework though like you, mm-hmm. oh, you yeah. talk about yeah, right. um right so we you, i love i mean just the title of your chapter makes me excited <laughs> homework how to help without taking over so can yeah. you can you tell us a little bit more about that how how do we help without taking it over and ne- making it our thing so there are actually, there's, um, for parents of younger kids, there's actually a piece out there at PBS Parents that I wrote a while back. It's actually an excerpt from the book about what our role is when, oh, I'm sorry, that one's not an excerpt from the book, um, but okay. it's about what our role is when it comes to kids, um, when, when it comes to kids in our role. And our role is really to support and, and redirect them, to be there you don't have to be like sitting right next to them. In fact, that's probably not a great idea, but be present somewhere near, you know, within shouting distance. Mm -hmm. And then when they get frustrated, your job is to help them redirect, to help them sit with that frustration a little bit, to help them, you know, maybe encourage them to reread the instructions, maybe encourage them to, oh, look, well, what did you do with problem one? Maybe you can do some of the same things with problem two. Let's try that, that kind of thing. But not to give them the answers and definitely not to pick up the pencil and make any marks on that paper. Um, In fact, if anything, you know, from a teaching perspective, you've got to keep your hands off the homework because homework is information. That's how we assess learning, how we work to figure out, you know, we get the kids to give us evidence of their learning if the homework is done well. And, you know, that's a whole other, whole other conversation. Um, for what older about, kids, mm-hmm. for older kids, it's a similar thing. I mean, really, your job is to be there and supportive and to really encourage them. You know, for me with older kids now, what I do a lot of is, you know, man, you know, a year ago, you would have been, you would have, drop kicked that math textbook across the room, you would have been so frustrated with it, but I'm really proud of you for sticking with it. Or one of my sons recently was having issues with a particular concept. I think it was with math. And um, my husband's job was not, he's the math teacher in the house. I'm the writing teacher. (laughs) His his job was not to reteach algebra one. His job was to be a sounding board while to, to say something like, well, you, could you teach me what your understanding of how to do this problem is? And then to isolate any problems or any mistakes that he's hearing and to help redirect the kid, you know, that sort of support and redirect is the general rule with that sort of stuff. And the nice thing is for little kids or big kids, if they can't do their homework, the end goal of homework is not to have a page filled with writing and to have every problem done. The end goal is for kids to work out as much as they can on their own. And then if they can't finish their homework, it's to write a note to the teacher on the back of the homework or on a separate piece of paper explaining what they did and did not understand and articulate those problems to help them become their own best self-advocates. The next day, when they hand in their homework and it's not completely done, they can explain why it's not completely done and advocate for help for themselves. Oh, I love that. I love that. I never would have 
thought to suggest that, explain why, to write a note explaining why they need help. I think that's beautiful. I love that. Well, you know, those, you know, those homework books that, that teachers often will send home that the parents are supposed to sign, which is the dumbest thing ever. Like we're supposed to sign saying that we believe our kid has done their homework to the best of their abilities. How on earth do we know what the best of their abilities are? So early on, when, when I first started learning about this stuff, I signed over proxy to my son so that, and made it clear to the teacher that I wouldn't be signing that homework book anymore or God forbid, reading logs or any of those things, that that was my son's responsibility. And if he did not understand or could not finish, that notebook is the perfect place for him to write a note about what got him stuck, what he understood, what he didn't understand. Because as human beings, that skill, that's called metacognition, understanding what we do and don't know, that's something we're terrible at as human beings. So any opportunity to exercise that muscle is really good for kids. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Mm, I love this. No, what I was going to ask about is what about keeping track of the homework because I have one child who's super organized like Mm -hmm. her father. She makes lists and things like that. She's Mm -hmm. she's on the ball and, but you know, others uh, have trouble tracking homework. Uh, For instance, um, a friend of mine who has a child in a Montessori classroom, who's a, I think she's in a, like, she's a five or something like that years old. Anyway, they had a big thing for the hundred days of school and they said they sent home stuff a few weeks ahead of time, said the hundred days of school are coming up and you should bring in a hundred something like a hundred Cheerios or a hundred whatever objects. And so she, I guess she talked about it with her daughter and they, they talked about how this was coming up and she told her daughter, like, this is, you know, your job if you want to do this thing. And Mm -hmm. so then her daughter kind of, I guess, forgot about the thing. And then she 
you know, she let her daughter go into school without the hundred things. Right. Things, and then she went, and her daughter wanted to show her at the end of the day all these things, and she walked around and saw all these like beautifully arranged right. hundred things that the parents right. had done for the children, and it was right. very frustrating. In situations like that, or in situations like in all the different grades, like whose responsibility is it to keep track of the homework, <laughs> whether you have to do it or not, or you know when there is homework? Right. Well, the very first thing I would do is if you have decided that you don't want to be one of those parents that's doing the homework for the kid. And and again, I had a column for three years at the New York Times, and I wrote about that this there. The ter- it was called the Parent Teacher Conference. I wrote very specifically about parents keep your hands off your kid's science project. Make sure the teacher knows that you are handing more autonomy, giving your kid more autonomy, handing more responsibility over your kid, and that you will not be doing the work for the kids. So that helps the teacher, actually. I would love to know, you know, for me, it's really clear when it's parent work, but calling a kid on it, that's really tough. Um, And calling parents on it is really tough. But I also feel like it's my obligation to do that as well. And I do call parents on it when I see parent work coming in in the hands Mm -hmm. of kids or purportedly done by kids. I've written about that too. So I want my son's teachers to know that I will not be doing that. I, for example, don't ever log on to the portal. I never have logged onto the portal as a parent. I won't be doing that. If my kids, so therefore, here's my, my contact information. Here's how I like for you to contact me. Could I have yours? And I'm going to need for you to communicate with me if things start to go down the toilet because I'm not going to be on top of my kids. And therefore, since we're, we're in this together, we're working as a team so that my kid can you know, learn how to become more competent. I would love it if you would communicate with me. And I would also love it if you would hold my kid to consequences when he does forget things. So I've been known to do things like, you know, my kid has to stay after because he forgot his homework and I didn't take it in. That's fine. I've been known also to when my kid had a test coming up and the teacher had handed out a homework that was really to sort of understand whether or not the kid did or did or didn't know something. I have actually scanned those homeworks and emailed them to the teacher and said, absolutely on no, under no circumstances, give my child credit for this homework because he didn't bring it. But because I know he has a test tomorrow and you as the teacher need to know whether or not he's ready, here's the work. So you can walk that line. This is not total abandonment. This is, you know, information where information is needed, but please hold my child to consequences so that they can learn how to strategize for themselves. And teachers will appreciate that. Oh my God, Jess, you're my hero. I'm so excited. <laughs> I have this like this model of how to do this in a respectful way that makes it very, this very clear communication to both the child yeah. and to the school about what your expectations are. I mean, I would have probably just kind of just been in frustration, but I think this idea of just both with the child writing on the back of the homework, uh, uh, their knee, you know, what's going on. And then this communication with the teacher that, you know, you're not going on the portal. I love this because because yeah, I don't, I personally don't want anything to do with that. I want it to be my child's job to do the homework. I I feel like that's that and to keep track of it. I think that's, that's really, really important. 
Well, and that communication from the teachers with the teacher in the beginning is so important just because if you're going to pull the rug out from underneath your kid or your teacher without any notice, that's not fair either. And then on the flip side, you know, I've been known in the past that, you know, when things have really gone down the toilet with one of my kids and the teacher has handled it well or the teacher has been supportive or I make sure to thank them for how they handle it. Um, You can also do things like if your kid is really afraid to talk to their teacher and you know it needs to be their responsibility, you can role play that with them. I've also done things and have had parents do this with me as well as the teacher of their kids. I'll email a teacher and say, look, you know, my kid has something, he needs to talk to you about this math test that needs to be redone, but he's really nervous about it. Can you engineer an opportunity for that conversation to happen? Like mm-hmm. happen to meet one, you know, be with the kid at an opportune moment, bring the topic up, but don't, I'm not going to do for my kids, but I am going to make sure that opportunities come up for the teacher and my kid to work together whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. This is great. So letting those natural consequences happen, but being, mm-hmm. about having all this clear communication. I was wondering if you could give us, I, I absolutely love sort of the section of your book where you go through the sort of like sh- brief history of parenting in the United <laughs> States. I thought that was so fun because I love taking a step back and seeing the bigger picture, you know, because I look at generational patterns and how things are sort of passed on. Would you be willing to give us a little synopsis? <laughs> <of that? laughs> sure. I get, I get myself in trouble with these chapters because I'm a huge dork. I love the research and So like the book I'm working on now is a book about preventing addiction in kids. And the history chapter is at this point, probably 10 times longer. (laughs) Like it could be its own book on the history of childhood addiction in America, but it's really fun for me. And the short version is this, we're having kids later. We're having kids after more education. We're having kids after having been in the workplace for longer. And we're using the tools that we learn how to use there parent our kids. And some of the problems inherent in that are, I know plenty of parents who use Excel spreadsheets to, you know, track their kids' input and output. And, you know, maybe we don't need to know down to that level of, uh, down to the second decimal point about, you know, their input and output. And we're also used to coming from academia, coming from the work world, coming from, you know, more education we're used to getting a lot of assessments on how we're doing. We're getting used to getting report cards. We're used to getting, you know, work evaluations. And, you know, we have these kids and then you look around at a certain point and you realize, wow, I'm not getting any grades here and I'm freaking out. And, (laughs) and it's, you know, and the temptation is to start looking to our kids as a grade. Uh, you know, our kids are somehow an assessment of our parenting, whether that's, you know, down the road, the sticker you get to put on the back of your car, which by the way, the one thing I promised my child we would never do um, when he started looking at colleges was put a sticker on the back of our car because that was going to be his choice and his decision and his accomplishment, not ours. I don't get to, you know, boast in the parking lot at school with a sticker. It's not my accomplishment. It's his you know, we get together with other parents and we're, you know, we start hearing that those other kids are on, you know, the traveling soccer league and the cello lessons and the tutoring six days a week. And we start questioning our own decisions. But those, the things that, that we, that our kids do, the, the accomplishments our kids have, we don't get to co-opt those 
as evidence of our good parenting. Just like we don't get to blame ourselves, we shouldn't have to blame ourselves if things go wrong with our children. It's not our fault if our kids end up addicted to drugs and alcohol. It's not our fault if our kid has a learning disorder. It is just if we're, if we can't, you know, take credit for those failings, we also really can't take credit for all of their successes. And that's so unfair to them to take credit for those things because those are their accomplishments, not ours. Um, I think that's sort of how we ended up getting here. Plus, there's all sorts of other variables, including, you know, this pressured parents phenomenon, feeling super pressured when we see evidence of what we should, oh my gosh, I should have my kid in tutoring six days a week and on the traveling soccer league. And what kind of horrible parent am I that my kid has downtime? Downtime is idle time and they'll be on the internet too much. And, you know, we tend to beat ourselves up when what we really should be doing is supporting each other in and, and supporting our kids in becoming their own people and not mini versions of us or not smaller versions of their big brother or their little big sister or whatever. Yeah, they're think, feeling that pressure. I think this is like psychologically hard for us as parents, mm-hmm. right? We are just... Of course. Prone, you know, they are, we see them in, as an extension of ourselves. And that, mm-hmm. that separation is a, a huge thing. And, and, you know, thinking about like how challenging this is for us, this idea of comparing with other parents. I think we often don't consider how our sort of need for like kind of status can play into things. (laughs) Yeah. You know, for the vast, 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 many, many years, majority of human existence, we lived in a small group of humans. So we actually Mm -hmm. like that mattered so much and actually being able to compare to what others are doing or not doing mm-hmm. that really yeah. mattered a lot for our survival and it and so we're so highly attuned to that and it's just like it's something that to the listener like when you hear this advice from Jess like and it, just know that this is hard it's just like this yeah idea of kind of trying to sort of turn off our judgment and our comparison, it can come to mindfulness can help with that. But like this idea, we shouldn't feel bad that we have it because it's so it's so intrinsic to who right. we are and how we evolved as a, a, a species that is a group that it really matters who where you're standing is with others. Well, and Wendy Grolnick writes about this too. I mean, whether or not you ascribe to this, the, some people have problems with the whole, you know, we evolved to want to protect our children from saber-toothed tigers and, you know, that mm-hmm. kid running down the soccer field or that kid that beat our kid for a placement on a at a scholarship that that's a threat and that we need to react with that same level level of cortisol and adrenaline and all that some people are ascribed to that and some people don't but whether or not you do i mean things have become so competitive that if you think about it, their classmates are a threat. There are all those other kids that want to get into the school that your kid wants to get into as a threat. There's so many things that threaten our kids' possible success that we feel the need to intervene in, in whether you call it snowplow, lawnmower, Blackhawk, helicopter, whatever you want to call it, that's essentially what we're doing is swooping in, getting rid of the threat and so that our kid can have a smoother course. And that just doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> that maybe, just doesn't work. Maybe we should try to be considering the, the other aspect of evolution in that we got to the place where we are as a species because yeah. of our intense cooperation, right? Yes. Our intense yes. ability to help one another do better together. I think that's the unsung part of, you know, reason why we are where we are today as a, as a species. And so maybe if we 
I do think our kind of fight, flight, or freeze, our stress response can be so overly mm-hmm. active today with all of those things. And it, I guess then it goes back to then our own work of looking at ourselves and saying, well, am I in a stress response? What is this reaction mm-hmm. am I having? And can I start to think in a, maybe in a more cooperative manner? Well, and there's some reframing that you can do too. As a teacher, I ask parents to do this all the time. I used to get complaints all the time about the groups the kids would be in. This one kid is not pulling her weight and my kid's having to do all the work or this one kid doesn't understand and my kid does. Can you change the groups? And I think what parents lose sight of is that number one, peer-to-peer teaching is one of the most powerful tools also for helping kids learn. When one kid teaches another, it's incredibly powerful learning tool for both of the kids. People, yeah. teachers know that and unless you've taught something, you really don't fully understand it. Oh, um, yeah, but also the whole Montessori system right yes. there, right? Yeah. Like the older kids teach at the younger kids. It's so right. And incredible. that whole like school classroom as community, that being part of a community, especially when you know you talk to these kids who've gone to the same school since they were in kindergarten and they've known all the same kids the whole entire time. The reason that a school like that becomes a community is when there's a certain degree of helping each other as opposed to being out just for your own kid and your own self. You know, when you look at the classroom as a collaborative place where, yeah, there are going to be some days when your kid is not going to be able to speak as much or do as much or learn as much because it's being held up by another kid who needs a little bit more help. That's all part of creating a community and it all Um, It all contributes to your child's learning and sense of empathy and ability to perspective take and all of these other things that are not necessarily quote unquote academic or, you know, what some people want to call non-cognitive skills, which make drive me crazy. They're not non-cognitive. They're cognitive skills (laughs) like empathy and perspective taking and all of that kind of stuff. These are all important. And yeah, we are almost more important. I I mean, they're more important than memorizing facts. That's for sure. And this, if you survey kindergarten teachers, they say they're the most important thing, that social skills and the ability to perspective take and speak up and for yourself and that kind of stuff are are some of the most important skills that kindergartners learn. Yeah. As the robots take over, (laughs) 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 these are the skills we need, right? We need the human skills that only... Yeah. What's really fun is then if you, if you extend that out, think about like, if you taught your daughter how to sort laundry, then you, one of the best ways for her to uh, share that, it would be to turn around and teach someone younger to do it. And, you know, thereby she gets to learn it even better than she did before. That's true. But her younger sister would drives her crazy. Yeah. Her older sister teaches her things. Um, I actually, I actually have a really fun laundry solution. If, if you Google special care instructions and Jessica Leahy, the most popular blog post I've ever had on my website <laughs> was of, of a pictures of a washer and dryer. My kid sort of started to claim that he didn't know how to do laundry anymore, even though he totally did. So I, I found out that you can, t- someone told me that you can use dry erase markers on the outside of appliances. That have the finish, uh-huh. and if you look at the pictures at special care instructions that post, um, there's photographs of every single instruction a kid could ever need to run a washer and dryer and do it successfully on the washer and dryer. So there's no way a kid could ever say, but I don't know how to do it because all the instructions are right there. And, you know, even the problem solving sort of guidance was written on there as well. And, you know, as new problems came up, they went on the washing machine as well and on the dryer as well. So it was a fun way. And and it brought humor to the situation because I don't want to sit there and argue with my kid about 
laundry again. But so instead I did this really funny thing that made me laugh and made them laugh. And it ended up being a really fun thing. And when we moved, actually, the person who bought our house begged me not to take it off. And I've promised her, <laughs> her, her boys are little and I've promised her I will make a special trip back and we're going to redo the whole thing with her boys so that um, they can learn how to do it as well. And it's turned into like an extended family kind of, you know, activity that's been really, really fun. Oh my God. That's so great. I love that. I love that, Jessica. Oh my gosh. I could probably talk to you for three hours. <laughs> so much great information. I love this so much, but I know I will not monopolize your time forever, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so I encourage, dear listener, The Gift of Failure is a fabulous book. There's so much in here. You talk about household duties and friends. We didn't even get to talk about friends. Yeah. Maybe I'll have you come back on. Where can people find out more about you and the work you're doing and uh, connect with you? The easiest place is jessicalahey.com. And there, not only can you find the bibliography, if you go under speaking, it's right there on a big button. But if you sign up on the email list or like go to contact me and, and put the your contact information in, you'll get this auto reply right away that has not only the bibliography, but like a book discussion group. If you want to use it as a book discussion thing at a school or with a group of parents, because we we can be each other's best supports as well as each other's worst enemies. I have a series of videos at YouTube called Gift of Failure Frequently Asked Questions, and the links to all of those are in that auto reply that you'll get if you sign up at jessicalahey.com. So, and I'm always at Twitter, at Jess Leahy. I love Twitter. I'm there mostly chatting with teachers all day long. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jess. I mean, You're so welcome. I, I have no idea how you are teaching parenting, writing for the New York Times, and writing all these <laughs> books and doing all the things you're doing. I'm a little perplexed. I think you might have a time turner like Hermione, but I really appreciate what you've done and the voice that you're bringing to these issues that I think are so valuable and important and the accessibility, the way you make it so accessible to so many. I really think that's a great service that you're doing for the world. And I just want to thank you that you for putting all this out there because it's made an enormous difference to me. And I'm I know so it makes glad. an enormous difference to so many. I mean, the idea that we should all have to do this for ourselves is nuts. If, if there's, you know, if people can go out and flatten the learning curve, do the research and report back, I mean, that's why I am a huge fan of sort of this journalistic nonfiction stuff. I, I just consume all of it because I love having my learning curve flattened out. And if I can do it for someone else, then great. Yay. Thanks. At the expense of my own humiliation and mistakes that I've made with my <laughs> and with my own children and my own students. So your poor child. He's like, no, no, I'm not that kid. <laughs> that wasn't me. It was my brother. <laughs> All of the stories about my children had to get passed through them first, and they they think they're kind of fun. There, believe me, there was lots I was not allowed to include. So, <laughs> well, thank you, Jess. You're so welcome. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Aren't you just so impressed with Jessica? She has so much information right at the tip of her fingertips. I love it. And she has so much research and and she knows her stuff. And, and you know, this these are things that we can start to change using the power of our voice, using the power of what we share and things like that. So this is really a great episode for you to share 
with people in your child's school, with people in your community. So we can start to change practices that aren't effective, like sticker charts and things like that. So I hope that this episode empowers you to give your homework to your kids and have some some good conversations. If you have any questions, you can always email me. And if you want to talk about this episode, you can join our private Facebook group. And to do that, you can just go to mindfulmamamentor.com. Scroll down to the bottom of any page, you'll see uh, a link to get some five simple things to be less irritable for your children that'll help you join the mailing list with over 20,000 other amazing parents who are working to create more peace in ourselves. And we'll get you onto that the Facebook group right away where you can have a conversation about this podcast. You know, talk about how it's not easy to give your homework to your kids, right? Talk about that stuff. So I hope you'll join us. Hope you'll join the conversation, maybe start the conversation. And yeah, I just want to let you know once more before we go that the Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Groups, this is a small group program that I run just twice a year and I work with moms in these small groups you get to know each other really well there's a lot of love and we get to help create changes and accountability bit by bit right and this is really the best way to make a change is like bit by bit over time and I love to be there to support these moms but it's a very limited program it's not for everybody so if you are interested in learning more about that or getting on the wait list for that you can go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching. All right. I hope you have a beautiful week, my friend. I hope that you have some peace, some ease. Hope that you have some energy to meet the challenges and the learnings that just keep coming at us. And this parenting journey, it doesn't seem to end. We always think like, oh, once I'll get there, I'll have made it. Nope, nope. Trust me, that just keeps coming. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, wishing you a beautiful week. Thank you so, so much for listening. And I will be back at you next week with an amazing, amazing episode that you must, must listen to with Mike Domich in my sexuality series called Can I Kiss You? So don't be there for that. It'll it'll come out on Tuesday if you're listening on real time. So so be there for that amazing this amazing episode. And I'm I'm trying to just say it. I'm wishing you a beautiful week. <laughs> and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for listening. Namaste. Hello you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.